The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. All believers will suffer for Christ's sake at some time and to some degree. If we are the real thing, we will suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. We will suffer for righteousness' sake. That's been the the broader context of where we've been over the last couple of months. That's the broader context of this entire letter from the Apostle Peter to strengthen us in our suffering as believers. So because of this, Peter tells us, as we saw last week, that there is a determination of dominion and direction that must be made. That was verses 1 through 6, of, or 1 through 5 of um, chapter 4. The determination that we must make, as we saw last week, is to arm ourselves in the same way of thinking as Jesus Christ, who suffered for Christ's sake, willingly following the will of God over being disobedient to God, no matter the cost. Right? When Peter says we're to have this this mind of Christ, we're to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking of Christ, it is to arm ourselves with the determination that I will follow God. I will be obedient to God. I will follow God's will regardless of the results in this life. If suffering comes, so be it. That was, that was the example that, that Christ set for us. And that's the determination that Peter says we must make. That determination when we make that becomes a declaration to the world that the dominion of sin no longer has power over us. That now we are no longer held captive to sin, sinful desires, but we're freed from that dominion and we are now living in and under the dominion of King Jesus. As we do that, the direction of our life changes where we no longer live as the Gentiles do. We no longer live as we once did. But the direction of our lives change. And now that we no longer live the way that we used to, and now that we no longer live the way that the world lives, we should not be surprised when they are surprised and they malign us. They speak negatively towards us. They persecute us with their words. And we should know that Jesus Christ stands ready to judge the living and the dead. That was last week. And you're going, it took you 50 minutes to do that last week. You just did it in three. (laughs) And we stopped last week. And hopefully you see that progression, that flow of of thought. We stopped last week um, really in in mid-thought for the Apostle Peter. Um, now, I, I say that because connecting verses 6 and, and 7 with its context is necessary to get a full and right interpretation of, of the text, right? 
So if you come in here and you take verse 6 and, and you pull it out of context, you pull it out and, and address it on its own, it, it can be confusing. But when we understand it in this flow of progression that Peter's making, it, it helps to make better and right, correct interpretation of it. You see, Peter has just finished teaching that Jesus Christ stands ready to judge, right? But those who malign you because you no longer live as they do will give an account to Jesus who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's where we ended last week. And then comes verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. So we get to to this verse 6, and we wonder, now what in the world does this mean? And that's a good question. So let's just look at it and understand it in the context that that Peter has given us in the larger context of encouragement in our suffering, um, but also in this, this expanded thought of we make a determination to live like Jesus lived, It's a declaration of dominion. It's a declaration of direction. That the world will look. They will malign us. We will suffer for it. But Christ is ready to judge. And then Peter says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. We know these thoughts tied together because... Peter tells us, for this is why. The this in verse 6 refers back to the judgment of Christ. This sure judgment is the reason why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Right? So we've got this this. this Statement here from the Apostle Peter that the gospel is preached, has been preached to the dead. Now, there's a lot of differing opinions as to what this really means. And I'm going to give this morning three options, three potential interpretations. So much like last week and the week before and the week before, we get to difficult teaching from the Apostle Paul. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't know um, which one of these is, is the right interpretation. I do know which one is a wrong interpretation. I don't know which one of the other two is a right interpretation. As a matter of fact, I think they're both right. And if they're both right, then we can, we can believe them without hesitation. Okay? So here they are, three options of what it means for the gospel to be preached to the dead. The first is, is that the gospel is preached in some way... And at some time, two people after they perish in the hopes that in the second life they will be saved. So that's some potential interpretations of this verse. 
This would be an interpretation that a Mormon would take of this verse. However, this one, I can say, is wrong. This is not an accurate nor biblical interpretation of the text. Some will take Jesus going and preaching to the the spirits now in prison as this verse in fulfillment. Jesus went and preached. He preached a message. What did he preach? Well, we know that the gospels preached to the dead. So then that must have been what Jesus did. It is not what Jesus did. That is not what this means. We know that in a number of places. I'll give you one, Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It is appointed once for man to die and then to judgment. You see the chronological activity that takes place, right? Death and then judgment. There is no potential to hear the gospel after salvation and to be, I mean, after death and to be saved. That potentiality does not exist. Just thinking elementary in that. It would seem to me that after death, the whole issue of the gospel no longer becomes an issue of faith because there is now evidence seen of the glory of God, the goodness of Jesus Christ, His uh, kingship over all things. Who wouldn't believe? There is no potentiality for that. We can rule that out. That is not the teachings of Scripture. Our only opportunity to repent of our sins and to be saved come in this life and this life alone. That is it. Second option. That this is that the gospel was preached to people who are now dead, but while they were living. Everybody tracking with me there? So when Peter says, for this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, what he's saying is, is that there are some who came before us who are now dead, but while they were alive, the gospel was preached to them. And now they're dead. Now, there's some some real potential here for this being what Peter means. Um, I I think it's the the easiest, simplest, clearest reading and understanding of the text. I think it makes sense within the larger context of 1 Peter to comfort us in our suffering. Why? Because it speaks to comfort those who are enduring persecution and who are dying for the sake of the gospel. It comforts them to know that those who went before them and as believers they died, that they now live, right? That's a comfort to us. The gospel was preached to those who came before us and they perished, but they are now alive in the spirit the same way that God is alive. That is is comfort to us to know that if suffering for righteousness sake 
comes to a point of death in us that there's nothing to fear over death because death brings life, life in the spirit, life like God has life that comes to us. That is, that is comforting. That is comforting. This also speaks in the context that the gospel never promises a physical salvation but a spiritual salvation. Right? The believers who have now died were, Peter says, judged in the flesh the way people are. That's verse 6. That this judgment that comes to people, judged in the flesh, this fleshly judgment the way people are, that's everybody. That is death. That is physical death. And that is a judgment that comes to every person. That's the way people are judged. That is the wages of sin, right? The wages of sin is death. There was no death before sin. Sin came with sin, came death, and death has reigned from Adam until Jesus Christ comes again. And these who have died in Christ are now spiritually alive in the spiritual realm and are enjoying all the blessings in the unseen spiritual realm. It's verse 6, for this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. And you see Peter drawing a dichotomy here between the flesh and the spirit. Judged in the flesh, alive in the spirit. And it could be, and it certainly is. This, this is not a wrong interpretation. That what Peter is, is reminding us is that the gospel never promises physical salvation. That just because you believe the gospel, just because you're a Christian, does not mean that your life on this earth is going to be easy, that it's going to be pain-free, that it's going to be suffering-free, that it's going to be death-free. That is not promised to us through the gospel. The gospel does not promise those things. The gospel does not promise physical health. It doesn't. But see, what happens is people believe that it does. They, they take a verse, they pull it out, they wrongly interpret it by his stripes. We are healed. To say that physical healing is guaranteed by the gospel and it is guaranteed to us if our faith is strong enough. And that if we are sick or if we are ill, that we are ill or we are sick, either because there's unconfessed and repented sin on our life or because our faith in God isn't strong enough for him to heal us. That is an adulteration of the word of God. It is not true. The gospel does not provide physical healing. That's not to say that God doesn't heal. He certainly does. That's not to say that God isn't good and gracious. He certainly is. God is good and gracious to those who are believers and to those who aren't. It's part of the common grace of God. What the gospel does provide is a greater healing. What the gospel does provide is a greater life. And that is spiritual life and spiritual healing. And can't you imagine these brothers and sisters in modern-day Turkey who are enduring incredible suffering and who will experience even greater suffering? Would you just for a second imagine that next week our attendance is lower because some of you were martyred? 
And then the next week, our attendance even lower because more of you were martyred. You were dipped in pitch and set on fire. You were fed to lions. It would kind of work to kill the joy of the place. And Peter is encouraging these believers to say, though they're judged as the way that, that all people are judged, they're alive spiritually with God. So, what does it mean for the gospel to be preached to the, even to those who are dead? It means that the gospel was preached while they are live, were living. And though they are now dead, they're spiritually alive. I'll take it. That'll work. Number three. That the dead here are the spiritually dead, not the physically dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Right? The living is a spiritual living here. There's no doubt about that. So that ties into that the dying then is a spiritual dying. That when the gospel is preached... To every person it's preached to, it's preached to the spiritually dead. Because we are all, before we put our faith in the gospel, spiritually dead. The scripture's clear on that. There's no wondering about that. Spiritually, we are dead. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are dead in trespasses and sins. We are dead. But yet, by the grace of God, when the gospel is preached to us and we hear the gospel and we trust the gospel, we receive the gospel, what happens where there was once spiritual death, there comes spiritual life. So that when there, where there once was physical life and there comes physical death, there experiences spiritual life. So when Peter says, and the gospel is preached even to those who are dead... It could be that the gospel is preached to those who are spiritually dead and they're made spiritually alive. So which is it? I'm not fully convinced. One way or the other with option two, option three as the absolute intention of Peter. But I am convinced that both are true and both are an encouragement. When a believer dies, we can rest assured that they are now alive in the same manner that God is alive. And as believers now, we can understand that we are more spiritually alive than we are physically alive. And though our physical bodies are wasting away, they are temporary. But the spiritual life is eternal. And so as we suffer, even unto the point of death, we can still suffer with joy, though our physical bodies are wasting away spiritually. We are alive. And when the judgment of all men come, the judgment of death, we can know, we can know that life in the same manner of God awaits us. It awaits us. You see, Peter's intention here is that there is a coming judgment, right? They will be judged. He stands ready to judge. There is a coming, a coming judgment. And this coming judgment is the motivation for our preaching. 
I want you to see that, right? For this is why. Jesus Christ stands ready to judge. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. Our motivation for preaching the gospel is that there is a judgment coming. And it is at hand. It is close. And there's one way to get spiritual life. And that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our motivation to preach the gospel is the sure and coming judgment of Jesus Christ. And this judgment is close. This judgment is close. For this is why the gospel is preached. Even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are. They might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Now, first let's talk about what the end of all things um, is. It is the coming judgment of Christ Jesus. That is what it is. That is the clear intention in the context of the letter. That is the clear teaching of the scriptures. That it is the coming judgment of Christ. And that all of creation is headed towards this moment when Christ comes and brings his judgment. And it is called the end of all things. However, the end here does not mean the ending of all things in a chronological manner. Okay? When we read end, we have the tendency to think of end as termination or cessation, right? As like the, the chronological end of all things. Like, you know, history's going, life is going, time is going, and then the end of all things is at hand. Like, whoop, everything stops at the end of all things. Termination happens. That is not what the end of all things is. It is not termination. It is not uh, cessation. It is instead a fulment or a consummation of all things. When, when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, what he's saying is the end of all things as we know it are at hand. When Jesus Christ comes again and his righteous judgment comes with him and, and those who are in him are um, freed from the judgment of Christ and are welcomed in to the fulfillment of all things. To the culmination of all things. It's, this is the, the second coming of Christ. And Peter says, it's at hand. Now, Peter is telling these churches in A.D. 64 that this moment when Christ comes as the righteous judge is at hand, meaning it is near. So, was Peter wrong? He was. Let's move on. No, of course he wasn't. I'm just saying if you were paying attention. Seeing if you were paying attention. Of course he wasn't. But it's a, it's a, it's a, a legitimate question, right? Because we're standing here 1,955 years later. And it hasn't happened. And Peter says... It's, it's near. It's about to happen. And so was he wrong? I do not believe he was wrong. I'll give you a, a couple reasons. One, 
is that God does not count time like we count time. I'm not even talking about that a day is like a thousand years to God, which is true, right? I mean, scriptures say that. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. The reality is there that God does not count time the way that we count time, mainly because God stands outside of time. God is not limited in time. God is eternal. The one who has created time is not, cannot be bound by time. He's outside of time. He sees all of time at the same time. That's God. Think on that tonight. God doesn't count time the way that we do. This is, this is evident in the scriptures. Consider the first time that God promised that the Savior would come. Do you know when it was? Genesis 3. Genesis 3 in the garden. Jesus makes the proto-euangelion, the first mention of the good news, where he tells the serpent Satan that this woman will bear a seed, and that seed you will, you will bruise him, but he will crush you. And he says, this woman, like Eve. So if, if we're there and we hear God tell a snake, we're weirded out by that to begin with. But then we're thinking like this woman's bearing a seed. From that moment until Jesus is born, this promised seed... Approximately 4,000 years. 4,000 years. He will, she will bear a seed. He's going to be the savior of the world. This is the promise of God. The sure promise of God. And creation waits and waits and waits and waits and waits. And longs for his appearing and longs for his appearing and longs for his appearing and longs for his appearing. And, and the feeling from the scriptures is it's close. It's close. It's close for 4,000 years. But was God slow in his promises? Of course not. Was God negligent in his promises? Of course not. God doesn't count time the way that we count time. It took 4,000 years for us, but it was the right time for God. So now think about that. God makes a promise that this Jesus will come and be born, and it takes 4,000 years for that promise to come to fulfillment. Then there's a promise that he will come again. And we can know that promise is sure, because God made it and he keeps all of his promises. And it's been 1,955 years. Well, it took 4,000 the first time. 1,955 isn't that much. It might be the way we see it, but it isn't the way that God sees it. So when Peter says, this moment, the end of all things is at hand, is he wrong? No, he's not wrong. God wasn't wrong in the garden. Peter isn't wrong to these churches. God doesn't count time the way that we count time. Secondly, I think that it means that the return of Christ is the next and final event in redemptive history. To say something is at hand means that nothing else stands in its way. That it is the next event in redemptive history and because of that, it could be at any moment. 
There's nothing else that needs to take place redemptively for Jesus Christ to come. I might be thinking, well, Jason, I don't know about that. There's some things that need to happen. The gospel needs to be preached to all nations. Some could argue that happened in the day of Pentecost. But let's just, let's just take Jesus' words for it. It's enough for me. Mark 13, starting in verse 35. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus using a parable to draw home the illustration that he is the master of the universe. He's the master of the house and he could come at any moment and we better be ready for it. Now, keep in mind, as Jesus says these words, we're reading them. Peter heard them. And so when he says the end of all things is at hand, he knows the ends of all things is at hand. Why? Because he heard Jesus say the master can come at any minute. The master can come at any minute. Romans 13, 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The apostles believed that they would witness the return of Christ. They believed that. It was not that they were misinformed. It is that they were informed. And they were informed by Jesus Christ himself that he could come at any minute. And they believed him. And that's why they taught it. They took Jesus at his word. They took the angel at his word. Jesus ascends to heaven. And they're standing there dumbfounded. This is the craziest thing we've ever seen. And an angel says, what in the world are you standing here with your mouths open for, looking into heaven? The same way that he went, he's coming again. He's coming again. Could be at any minute. They believed it. They lived that way. They proclaimed it. They preached it. And every believer should believe this. And it should change the way that all of us live because we believe it. Right? And that's Peter's point here. That judgment is coming, and it is coming at any moment. Therefore, live in a certain manner. This is the, this is the transition in the letter at this point. Jesus is coming, judgment is coming. He's coming at any moment, the end is at hand. And Peter makes a a shift here to say, because the coming judgment of Christ could happen at any moment, the way you live should change. How? Well, Peter then lists in chapter 4, six ways to live in the light of the coming of Christ. Six ways. You ready? We're just going to do two. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way that people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, because of this, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. 
for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. I like the way one commentator, Brett, said it. I don't even remember who it was. Be sane and sober. Because Jesus is coming back, and because he could come at any moment, be sane and sober. We have it in the ESV as being self-controlled and sober-minded. This, this word here from self-controlled is an incredibly difficult word to, to translate because it's one of these words that Peter uses that nobody else uses it this way. And, and it is, it's translated all, all different ways. But even though they may be translated as different words and, and different things, they all come to one common understanding, one common meaning. And it is that it has its emphasis on thinking. It's, it's being of sound judgment. It's being of sound judgment. So that was hard for me to get there naturally because you read self-controlled and you think actions, right? Not doing things, controlling. But it has more to do with being of a sound judgment. The emphasis is more on thinking. It's about thinking and evaluating things in a mature and a correct way. Now, when we apply that to self-control, it is to think of yourself correctly, to think of your passions correctly, and in doing so, exercising self-control and restraint. It's having a sound judgment of yourself. Romans 12, 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul telling us to think with a sobriety of judgment, a sound judgment of ourselves, not to think of ourselves too highly, but to have an accurate understanding of who we are. And in the context here, I believe it's an accurate understanding both of of who we are in that that we are in Christ Jesus. He is in us. If this life is taken away in suffering, that's okay. Our life is hidden with, with Christ who is in God. And when He appears in His glory, we will also appear with Him in glory. But it's also don't engage in the things that these Gentiles do in their passions. These are no longer your passions and your desires. Think clearly about yourself. Think clearly about yourself. This is illustrated in the Gospel of Mark. And it's illustrated. This is an illustration for what what Peter means here in an interesting story. I'll read it for you, Mark 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs of man, out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. This is a a demon-possessed man who's living among the dead that has supernatural strength. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he 
wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles into pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. What I, I'm getting ready to preach, Mark. I mean, just read that and just the sheer authority of Jesus Christ. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. Salt cured bacon. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed. And here it is. In his right mind. And they were afraid. See, this is the illustration. This is the root word. This is the illustration of what Peter means when he says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Have a clear judgment about yourself. Be in your right mind. You see, this is what Jesus does. This is what the gospel does. He makes us think clearly. To see things clearly. To see ourselves clearly. This is what Jesus does. This is what the gospel does. It takes the blinders off. It shines the light in the darkness. And now we can see who we are. And we can have a right judgment about that. We can see the world for who they are. And we can have a right judgment about that. And this is necessary for holy living. you got to be in your right mind. You have to have this kind of clarity of thought and of judgment about yourself to live holy. Because Christ will come at any moment and bring with him the judgment. Think clearly. Be self-controlled. Do not live as they live. And also, be sober-minded, Peter says. Now, this is very closely related to being of sound mind or being self-controlled. Where being self-controlled has to do with a a right understanding of ourselves. Being sober-minded has to do with being spiritually observant. Being aware of spiritual things around us. This is what Jesus had in mind in Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. This is being sober-minded. 
to stay awake. Clear thinking. Clear thinking. Matthew 26, 4, or 26, 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. Watch and play. We are to be thinking clearly and paying attention. And these two characteristics, Peter says, have a direct impact on our prayer. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Church, if our minds are not centered on Christ, if they are chasing after the things of the world, if we are not alert to our own needs and shortcomings... If we are not spiritually aware, we are unable to pray properly. That's what Peter means here. This is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray in my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. For our prayers to be effective, our mind has to be engaged. And our mind has to be thinking clearly about spiritual things and clearly about ourselves for the sake of our prayers. Listen, a major part of prayer is to get our lives in tune with the will of God. And if we are not self-controlled and we are not sober-minded, we are unable to discern His will. And if we are unable to discern His will, how in the world is our prayer going to be effective? So, for the sake of our prayers, we are to live with self-control and sober-mindedness. Knowing that at any moment, Christ could come again. And when he comes, he is bringing with him judgment. So, the time of our suffering is short. Be encouraged. And the time of evangelism is short. So get to work sharing the gospel. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.